The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Revelation chapter 19. We're coming to, can you believe it, nearly the end of this book. We've been at it for a while. We're going to finish Revelation 19 today. Uh, and then there's only three chapters left. So we're going to look at chapter 19, verses 6, all the way to 21. Revelation chapter 19, verses 6, all the way to 21. So let's hear now the word of the Lord. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, pure, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints." And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven open and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's cloaked in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of Mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much that we can be together this morning to worship you. We thank you that we can... Direct our eyes to the truth of who you are. Direct our hearts to the beauty of what you've done for us, who we are to you. 
And Lord, we want to continue that worship by sitting beneath what you have to say. Lord, we want to humbly receive the message from your word. So I pray, Lord, that you would help me to teach this faithfully and clearly. And I pray for everyone who hears this morning, Lord, that the Holy Spirit be the one who preaches the sermon that each mind and heart would be pierced, impacted, um, changed by the truth of who you are, Lord God, and what you're saying, and that we respond. We would respond accordingly. Lord, please, please form us. Help us to trust you and live faithfully in this life as we await your return. We pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. So as you uh, listen in this morning, as you sit here this morning, I wonder, how do you feel about your future? How do you feel about the future? Probably a variety of answers to that question. Uh, Maybe for some of us, we're feeling excited, optimistic, things uh, we're hopeful about. Uh, Maybe for others, things uh, seem pretty dark. Could be a bunch of different things, right? Could be personal disappointment, sense of uncertainty, could be worries about trends in our circumstances, our relationships, families, could be our country, could be things going on in the world, and and there are things to be worried about, aren't there? Um, But how do you feel about your future? How do you feel about your destiny? What is your destiny? I use that word, and what do you think of? I know what you're thinking of. You know what I'm thinking of. Luke, right? This is your destiny. It's a Star Wars word. But the word destiny, that just, what is it? It's the events that will necessarily happen to a particular person in the future. That's what that word means. So do you have a destiny? Are there events that will necessarily happen to you in the future? What are they? How do you know? And are you excited about those? Well, those are big questions. And you know, humans uh, seem to have a huge hunger for this kind of thing, right? To know your destiny. Uh, In the midst of the chaos of life and the uncertainty of life, we want something to hang our hearts on. So I guess it shouldn't surprise me, though it always does, that even in this supposedly scientific age, things like palm reading and astrology are still a huge business. Why? Oh, I want meaning. I want to know my destiny. Well, of course, as Christians, like, we're, we're not interested in that stuff, right? Right? Um, it's nonsense. It's also a form of idolatry, you realize that, to trust your future to anyone or anything other than God and his plans for you and his word for you. Well, that, that trumps who he's supposed to be to us. And, and also in that kind of worldview of astrology or whatever, there seems to be a fatalism to it, right? There's, it's written in the stars. It's nothing, there's nothing you can do. As Christians, we don't expect God to tell us every detail of our lives, right? In fact, he, he tells us he's not going to tell us every detail of our lives. We are meant to trust him, his leading of us, his sovereignty over us as we strive to obey his word. And so the Bible never, it never promotes fatalism. But it does tell us some things in the future 
some things that will necessarily happen to certain kinds of people so that, so that what? We can respond now in the present. But there, there is a destiny. And we heard of the, the destiny of different kinds of people in our text this morning. There are events that will necessarily happen Two different kinds of people. And, and this morning, we especially see the future destiny of God's people. And if you heard it, I don't know how you're feeling about your, your future this morning, but your ultimate future, it's pretty encouraging. It's pretty encouraging. In fact, if you belong to Jesus, part of what this text is telling you is that you have no idea just how happy you will be forever. So we're continuing through the book of Revelation. We're getting towards the end, finishing chapter 19 today. We remember that Revelation is this collection of visions that all focus on one main theme. And what would you say the main theme of Revelation is? I'd say it like this. There's a king, and what's his name? His name's Jesus. Jesus is king. He has won. He will win and his people win with him. So we should follow him faithfully no matter the cost. Because Jesus is king. But before we get into the details of, uh, of chapter 19, I just want to remember a little bit of background with you. So if you remember back all the way back in chapter 12, a new, a new section began. And it began with this really colorful story. And so we had these uh, vibrant pictures of these characters in the story. And it starts with a woman. And this woman's going to have a son. Do you remember that? Who, who is the woman? Well, we saw the woman that, that signifies God's covenant people. People of faith, I think past, present, and future. God's covenant people signified by that woman. And she's going to bear a son. And, and who's that son? Well, it's Jesus. Jesus who will come through God's covenant people just as he came, uh, you know, the promises to Abraham, promises to David came uh, born, born in Israelite, he comes through God's covenant people, but he also comes to save God's covenant people. So this woman and her son. But then very quickly, there were these other characters jumping in. You remember this, this dragon, he's red, and he, he wants to eat the, eat the woman and her kids. He's after her to get her. Who, who does that signify? It signifies Satan himself. A powerful, personal being wants to tempt and ruin God's people. And then there, was, there were other characters that came. There was the beast that comes out of the ocean. And, and he's in league with that dragon. And, and, and he's going to dominate God's people as well. And do you remember what he signifies, the beast? Uh, it signifies government gone bad. When the authorities of this world mandate, basically, idolatry. They make it really hard for you to worship Jesus or really hard for you to not worship not Jesus. Mandating idolatry and it's satanically inspired. Then there's another beast that comes. This beef, beast, you remember, looks like a lamb, talks like a dragon. It's a false prophet. That's what this beast is called, the false prophet. And so that signifies all these movements to, to teach you wonderfully, wonderful sounding religious things that would draw you away from the gospel of Christ, that would draw you away from following him faithfully according to his word, uh, especially false Christianity. So you've got Satan, you've got governments gone bad, you've got false teaching, and then the last couple of weeks, who have we been looking at? 
chapter after chapter. Well, it's Babylon. And who is she? She's this alluring uh, woman described kind of as a, a prostitute because the idea is she's, she's trying to draw you to spiritual adultery, to love something more than Jesus Christ. And so she signifies those cultural economic systems that compete for your affections. They would get you to love something more than Christ himself. So there's enemy after enemy after enemy in the story. You see how they come? The dragon, the beast, the false prophet, Babylon. And then picture after picture we see, and we could go through them all if we had time, and you see this picture of, it, it looks like it goes really bad for the church. They all gang up against the church. Back in the letters to the church, we saw sometimes the church will look hypocritical. It looks like it looks like they lose in the sense of integrity. Other times we see pictures of persecution. It looks, it looks like they lose in the sense of just getting stomped. And by the end of some of these chapters, we see all of these characters are making war on God's people. And it looks hopeless. It looks like we're trampled upon. It looks like we can never win. That's how it feels sometimes. But then what did we see begin to happen? Remember how these characters came on the scene? There was the woman and her son, and then there was the dragon and the beast and the false prophet in Babylon. Well, what did we see the last couple chapters? What's going to happen to Babylon? She's going to fall. She's going to be destroyed. And what are we going to see in this chapter, in the same order? Who else is going to fall? Today we get to see the fall of the false prophet and of the beast. And chapter 20, when we get to that, I'll get ready, we finally get to what happens to the dragon. And can, can you guess? Can you go and guess? Do you know the end of the movie, the end of the story? Yeah. He falls too, so that by the end, every one of the enemies of God's people that seem too great for us, too mighty for us, every one of them falls in the order corresponding to how they came. And all that's left in the end is the Lord God and his people. And so in chapter 19, we're beginning to anticipate all that. We're beginning to see around the corner into this victory that Jesus will fundamentally win for us. And that's why, and we, we saw the first part, beginning of last week, chapter 19, what, 1 to 5. This threefold repetition of God's people. Hallelujah. 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 What's hallelujah mean? Praise the Lord. And then look at how our section for today begins. Verse 6. It only intensifies the voice of a great multitude. Hallelujah. So now it's, it's all God's people are doing. What are we doing? We're praising God. Guess what your destiny is if you belong to Jesus? You'd be praising God. That's what you're going to be doing. You'd be praising him. Wow. That's a happy future. Now, some of you are thinking, praise? Does that mean like, you know, you meet in a room and sing? Well, maybe. I kind of like doing that with you. Um, but it, it's, it's so much more. It means so much more. Our destiny is praise. And this passage wants us to unpack that. So we're going to see it in several different ways. Um, first of all, just go ahead and tell you, I think there's going to be like six, six parts to our message today, okay? And you're like, six? That's twice of what a pastor's allowed. You get three. I'm doing six. Uh, the first part is uh, just remembering and unpacking praise a little bit. I think it's so important. So unpacking praise. 
Then the body of the message in this chapter is four things we're going to praise God for. We're going to walk through those. You're going to see four, four things that inspire that praise. And then the sixth thing after that is we're going to see the response that knowing the future for God's people is praise should bring in our life today. This passage wants a response. So if you're, if you're listening in and you're not a believer and you haven't trusted yourself to Jesus Christ, this passage is imploring you to repent and turn from your autonomy and your self-rule and trust yourself to Jesus and who he is, what he's done. Calling you to repent. And if, if you do belong to Christ, this passage is trying to encourage you and keep you praising now because you know one day, no matter how dark it might seem to get in this life, your future is joy, it's happiness, it's praise. So let's walk through that together. First point, verses six to seven, we see how, some of how praise is our destiny. Uh, John says, I, I heard what, se- what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. So what do you notice so far? First of all, it's a huge group, voice of a great multitude. This, this should remind you of what we saw in chapter 7. You remember, it was a long time ago. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping Jesus Christ together. And so there's this one voice of a great multitude, and you hear it's like the roar of many waters, the sound of many peals of thunder. In Southern California, you might not know what thunder is. Uh, have you ever traveled, been somewhere where you hear thunder? You ever, you ever had a thunderclap like, whoa, scare you, shake the house? Okay. Or maybe you visited Niagara Falls. Have you tried that on? Or you've been to a huge waterfall, the closer you get to it, and your friends are like, they're trying to tell you how good it is, but you can't hear them. How come you can't hear them? It's too loud. I'm borrowing a friend's amplifier right now for my electric guitar. It's way too big. It's late, way too loud. If I turn it up like a fourth of the way, I think the window will fall out of the wall. It's sound you can feel as much as you can hear. Have you experienced that? That's what this is like. But it's quite discernible what is being said. And you're a part of it. Your tone, your voice is a part of it. And they're crying out. People from every ethnicity, every culture, all of God's people from start to end with one passion, all of the diversity flowing into unity. Hallelujah. Rejoicing, exalting. It says, let us rejoice and exalt. Have you ever ever been so happy about something it gave you like a physical response? This is one thing sports can do. I remember being at Fenway Park once where the Red Sox beat the Yankees. Okay, and I'm thinking of you, Vera, right now, okay? The Red, the Red Sox beat the Yankees, and it was like the last play, the last inning, and everybody in Fenway Park is jumping, and the park is shaking, and you're giving hugs to people you don't even know. And why? It was a baseball game. Or when the Patriots came back on the Falcons that one year in the Super Bowl. Oh, my gosh, some of you were weeping. Some of you turned it off before then. Some were praising. Why do I bring that up? Can you remember? Do you remember? Have you felt it? News so good. That it gave you like a physical response. And you shared it with somebody who also thought that news was so good. And you responded together to that news. These are the, these are the best moments of life. 
praise. These people are praising like that. It's, it's, the, it's the fulfillment of every little tiny praise we've ever had in this life. It's the real thing, the true thing, right then and there, praise. And what is it that they're praising? What is it that they see? Verse 6 to 7, hallelujah for the Lord, our God, the Almighty reigns. The Lord, our God, the Almighty reigns. Does that make you want to praise? It should. The, the, the key word I want to focus on here is our. Our. You have an idea of the Lord God? I hope you're thinking of the God of the Bible, the creator of heaven and earth, the upholder and sustainer of life, the source of every good gift, the judge of all the earth. That's the Lord. That's the Lord. But what about that word, our? The Lord our God. Are we allowed to say that? See, our God? Now, we don't want to get this wrong in the sense of like we have him in our pocket, right? And he's our magic genie and we're like, do as we say. No, he's, he's not your, he's not your slave. He's your God, okay? So, so that's not what we're saying, but, but he's your God if you trust Christ. He's in covenant with you. He sees you as his and he is yours. That was, that was his promise. This was the point the whole time his promise to Abraham. I will be your God and you will be my people. We'll be in relationship together, in fellowship together. The God of the universe, the true God, the only God, the living God. He's my God. He's your God. Friends, you read the Psalms and you think of encouragements to get, through, get you through the difficulties of life. So many times it's because God is our God. Look at Psalm 46, 1. Psalm 46, 1. How, how is it that you could not be afraid even when everything seems to be falling apart? How are you gonna do that? Because I, I don't know about you, I get scared. I get scared when I have to make hard choices, when I have to say hard things. I get, fear comes easy to me. How, how can you not be afraid? Well, here's one way. Psalm 46, 1. God is, what's the word? Our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Oh, oh, the real God is my God. He's my refuge. He's our refuge. Okay, that gives me courage, right? So they're praising our God, the Almighty. Then another word to think of, he reigns. So right now it's true, right? We walk by faith and not by sight. Yeah, I mean, I told you this morning, Jesus is king. Can you find any things outside the doors that don't look like Jesus is king? Does it always look like he's king everywhere you go and everywhere you participate? Does it always look like he's your king in your heart and your mind? How you feel, how you live, what you say. So, so we walk by faith and not by sight. I believe it, he's king, but I'm waiting, aren't you? I'm waiting. I'm, I'm waiting to see him explicitly be king. Right here, right now. We're waiting for we don't walk by faith anymore. It's by sight. It's just here. See it, experience it, feel it. And that's this kind of praise right here. For the Lord, for our Lord, the Almighty, he reigns. This is a foretaste of his kingdom will come explicitly. And he reigns for our good and we will taste it. We will see it. We will feel it. We will be healed. 
We will be vindicated. We will be saved. We will, know, we will know and taste the fruits of all his blessings. It won't just be faith. It'll be explicit. Can you taste that a little bit? When all the prayers of let your kingdom come get answered. When Jesus renews the world, do you think any will be, anybody will be like, oh, it is, Okay. You think it'll be like that? When, when God wants to lavish his goodness and make things the way they ought to be and show, Ephesians says he's gonna lavish his kindness on you forever. Do you think anybody's gonna be like, well, better than hell, I guess. Is anybody gonna say that? Is anybody gonna feel that way? Or are we all gonna go, ha, because it's so much better than we could have even conceived? Of course. What's praise? Praise is the expression of joy at the experience of something beautiful. And nothing will be more beautiful than the explicit reign of our God when he comes for us. Okay? So we thought about praise. What is it? It's the expression of joy at the, at the encounter of something beautiful and wonderful. First reason we're going to pray is because the Lord God, the, the Lord God, the Almighty, he's our God, and he reigns, and we're going to experience that, okay? Now we're going to get into the second reason we're going to praise, and just to let my overhead guy know, I'm skipping the long C.S. Lewis quote. If you want it later, let me know. I'll email it to you. Second reason we're going to praise, verse 7. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For, for why? The marriage of the Lamb has come. Hmm. What is this illustration trying to communicate to you? When, when Jesus comes back, what is it kind of going to be like for his people? Revelation tells you several times it's going to be like a wedding feast. A wedding feast. So, so we learn from this illustration. Isn't it kind of like the church? We're in a long-distance relationship right now. It, we have letters, <laughs> right? We have letters. Now, we have more than that. We have the presence of the Lord himself by the power of the Holy Spirit. We have more than that. We fellowship with him now. But we don't have him yet. Not the way we will. So, so we're waiting. We have letters. We offer prayers. We know we love our Lord, but we walk by faith. We don't have him in completeness. I've seen this picture a couple times in my life. I think of a couple that has waited and waited and longed for the moment and hoped for the moment. And then I've, I've been to the wedding feast when I see them have their first dance together. You're kind of looking at something at something holy. And they're finally, they're finally together the way they want to be together. And the wait is over. If, if, you, if you grab a taste of that idea in your mind and your heart right now, if you can just have, a, have a, a flavor, a scent of what that idea is, whether you've seen good pictures of that or not, the true reality of that is when we get to be with Jesus, finally. It's when we get to be with Jesus. 
And it's the wedding of the lamb. If you're not familiar with the imagery, that sounds strange, but, but not if you know the imagery. Why is it the wedding of the lamb? What was the price he paid to have us as his bride? He gave up his life for us. He, the eternal son of God, took on flesh, lived a perfect life, and went to the cross as our substitute. That's why he's the lamb. He dies as a substitute for the wrath of God that we deserve. That work was vindicated in the resurrection of the dead. But we're getting married here. He said it's the, he could have said the wedding feast of the king, couldn't he? Couldn't he have said that? Sure. But it's not what he said. He said the wedding feast of the lamb. Why? Hey, playing with this illustration, church. Does your husband love you? In Hebrews, it says, for the joy set before him, he went to the cross. Does your husband want to be with you? Does he want you to be with him? That's his prayer in John 17. Lord, I pray you'd you'd let him be where I am. He wants to be with you. And he will be with you. He's not content with the way things are right now. It's not the way it's going to stay. Uh, Just like I I would not be content to be engaged for 23 years. What do I need to do? (laughs) He will not be content to wait forever. He will come for his bride, and we will go to the wedding feast. Isn't that wonderful? And what are you going to do when you get there? You're going to praise. That's right. That's what you're going to do. You're going to praise. But, hey, we need to ask ourselves a question. Do you love the person of Jesus? We care about theology at this church, and we always will. Um, But it's way too easy, isn't it, to love knowing the facts and lists of theology and forget loving the person that theology points to. We want to love theology because we love the person. If, If you don't love the theology, you'll say you love a person. If you don't know the person, I'm not sure you love them. Tired illustration, but if I'm like, hey, I love my wife. If you met her, she's 6'4", blonde hair, wears red high heels. You'd be like, the woman you are talking about may be called Marsha, but it's not your wife. It's easy to say, oh, I love whoever. If you, if you don't know anything theologically true about Jesus, do you know and love him? But on the other hand, oh, you can know facts of theology. And I, do you love him? So it's just a question for your heart. Do you love the person of Jesus. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 22. 1 Corinthians 16, 22, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. Can't fathom trusting Jesus and not growing to love him. Now, I praise God. I want to say this real clearly. I praise God that I, am, I, don't, I will not be saved based on the passion and perfection of my love for Jesus. How many of you would go to heaven based on how well you have loved Jesus? No. Um, No, Jesus loved the Father for me in my place, right? Uh, I'm justified by grace through faith. He's made me righteous in what he's done. But for those who trust him, guess what's going to happen to you if you really trust him? You're going to grow to love him. May we be praying that we would love our Lord. And so we say, come on, 
Let's follow him together as we praise him together. So what, what's your destiny, church, if you're, if you're in Christ? You're gonna praise. First reason you're gonna praise, because the Lord God, the Almighty, he's your God, and he's gonna reign. Second, you're gonna know incredible closeness with Jesus. Third, we get to praise because we get to see and share in the glory of our King. See and share. Here we're gonna look at verses 11 to 16. Verse 11, then I saw heaven open and behold, a white horse. You like that image? What does the white horse signify to you? I think it's just hit myth and story of culture in general. I mean, don't you hear it? What are you, the knight riding on your white horse? I mean, what's, what's, do you get the idea? What, what's the white horse tell you about? Nobility, victory, power. And, you know, it's very curious because Jesus, when he comes, he's always coming riding, riding something. What did he ride the first time he went into Jerusalem? Anybody remember? A donkey. What does he ride the second time he comes? A horse. Why? Really important ideas here. How did he come the first time? Humble. Peaceful. He came to save his people by taking on himself the wrath of God. How will he come the second time? Glorious, mighty, in holy justice, saving his people by bringing the wrath of God. And you need to know him in both ways, don't you? You need to know him in both ways. If you only have a Jesus riding on the donkey... He's weak, he's mild, he never cleanses the temple. There's no hope for justice or judgment in the future. And you, you really have, have no fear of him. But if you only have Jesus on the horse, you'll never see his grace, the way he cares for the weak, the downtrodden, the way he's so merciful, the way he dies for sin. He's both. He's both, he's the lion and the lamb. So let me ask you, which one are we meant to exemplify right now in this age? What do we ride right now in this life? We insist on church members who ride the donkey in this life. Am I right? Do we, do we kill our enemies or do we die for them? Love your enemies. And, and what do you do for those who persecute you? You, you pray for them. Do, do you curse them? No, Romans 12, bless those who curse you. Do not curse them. Bless them. Read 1 Peter sometime. Um, when, when, when he was reviled, he didn't revile back. He, he suffered unjustly, trusting himself to the Father. We glorify his first coming, his donkey riding in this life, okay? But did you see who else is riding white horses when he comes back? We are. It'll be time. It'll be, it'll be, the time will be right to come in total triumphalistic victory because there he is to make it right. If we get vengeful and put justice into our own hands and, and get riotous or, or uh, quarrelsome, we'll do it wrong because we still have the flesh. We're still sinful. But when he comes and we're there with him, it'll be time. 
He'll ride his white horse, and so will you. Are you looking forward to it? I know it's probably symbolic. I kind of wish it was literal. Maybe it will be. You know? But we're going to see our king, and we're going to share in his kingdom. Second thing in this passage, you see he has four names. Four names. Now, some commentators are like, yeah, we have a problem here because he tells us his name, and then there's a name nobody knows. And I'm like, why is this a problem? How many names does God have in the Bible? Got all sorts of names. And why? What's the significance of a name? Well, there's, there's so much to it, but a name, biblically speaking, gets at the core of who you are. Gets at the core of, of, of what defines you. So look at these four names of our king. First of all, he's faithful and true. Uh, in the Proverbs it says, many a man proclaims his faithful or his steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find. That's a haunting verse. Many a man proclaims his steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find. Our world is wearing the scars of unfaithful men. But Jesus is not one of those. He's a faithful and true husband. And he will come and he will judge. He keeps his word. He's faithful to his word. He judges according to the word. Everything he says, he does. He's the one worthy to judge. You see, he has eyes of fire. That's what that's about. He's worthy to judge. To judge, you need to see all the details in perfect clarity. And let me tell you, Jesus does. In fact, Jesus could say in the Gospels, um, Every careless word will be taken into account on the last day. That one crushes me. You? Anyone? It crushes me. I'm going to answer for my words? I thought those, can't those be the small sins that are overlooked? Because I have the big sins to worry about. No, your words. He has eyes of fire. He sees. He sees in your heart. He sees in your motives. He sees. And he's also wearing many diadems. And commentators say this is significant because uh, if you've noticed all these bad characters, the beast comes out wearing some crowns, and this person has some crowns. And now Jesus, the Greek of it is, he's just got like loads of crowns on his head. What does that image give you? Kind of points at what we're going to see in that final name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Who's the true king of everything? Jesus is. You remember the Great Commission? Hey, go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them, um, teach them. How does he start that? Why, why would you do such a thing? Because that's a scary thing. It's very difficult. could get you in trouble. Right before that, he says, all, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's why you go. King of kings. Faithful and true, the one worthy to judge, the one sovereign to judge. We're also told he has a name no one knows but himself. What do, what do you think that means? In a way, it's kind of ironic to try to figure it out. You catch my drift? No one knows it, but I think I do, you know. Well, but we, it is communicated to us, right, for a point, for a reason. So what are we supposed to take by the idea that there's a name that no one knows but himself. I and, 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 and others too think it's about his incomprehensibility. Incomprehensibility. 
He's so majestic and so wonderful. There will always be so much you don't know. Now, this doesn't mean you can't know anything about Jesus. You can know a lot about Jesus, and you can know Jesus a lot. And you'll always want to be growing in knowing Jesus. But you will never get to the end of knowing Jesus. And you will never have Jesus in your pocket. Jesus will never be tamed or under our control. He's incomprehensible in his infinite beauty, his strength, his majesty. So it humbles us and it awes us and it also gives us joy in knowing we'll never be bored. You'll never get to the end in heaven and be like, I've seen it all several times. There'll always be more all to find out. So we see Jesus is faithful and true, his first name. A name no one but knows but himself. He's incomprehensible. We'll get to know him. Three, he's the word of God. The word of God. John loves this theme, doesn't he? Have you read John chapter one? Then you read Revelation 19, same author. Jesus is the word of God. What does that mean? If you wanted to know God or see what God was like, where would you look? It's not like you can take a plane up into the sky. It's not like you can demand he come down. Where would you look? How would you know about God, his character, his desires, who he is, what he's like? Where would you know? He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the word of God. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So Jesus is the communication of God. And as so, he's the fulfillment of all of God's promises in the Bible. Do you believe that? That is so important and so true. Jesus is the fulfillment of every promise in Scripture. What do you think? Isn't it true the Bible makes no sense without Jesus? Where are you going to go? It, it, it ends in flames. It's lost. It's broken. So many promises don't seem to work. So, so much hope doesn't seem to come true. The Bible makes no sense without Jesus. In the same way, can you make any sense of Jesus without the Bible? I'm very skeptical of anyone who wants to talk about Jesus without showing me him from the scriptures, aren't you? You should be. Uh, the Bible makes no sense without the person of Jesus. Jesus makes no sense without the Bible. And in Jesus, all the promises and truths of the Bible are fulfilled and come true. And so here we have in this amazing picture, the word making the word come true. We're, we're walking by faith and not by sight, right? We're waiting for God's promises to find their fulfillment. And then who is it that makes the word come true? It's the word. And what does he have in his mouth? Did you see it? A sword. Why is the sword in his mouth? Because the word is the sword. And, and do you get this picture of this battle? You know, in the movies we like, there's this big dramatic battle, you know, swing the sword, and you don't know if the victor's going to win or not. And at the last moment, he comes through. Well, I got to tell you, at the end of history, when Jesus comes back, it will not be like that. There won't be any drama on, like, there's Satan and, and Jesus wrestling and, you know, who's going to win? No, Jesus will say, I win, and it will be over. Because he's the word making the word 
come true. The word comes true. It is return. All of it. Have you noticed in Revelation, you've seen all, pretty much every aspect of the Old Testament replayed? There's reference after reference to Psalms, reference after reference to all the prophets, reference after reference to historical pictures, the Exodus, Babylon. The scope of the entire Old Testament is replayed somehow in the book of Revelation, and it all finds its fullness, it all finds its finish, it all finds its end, it all comes true at the return of Jesus Christ. He's king of kings and Lord of lords. God has been telling us he has a king and that every knee will bow. Read Psalm 2, read Philippians 2, and here it comes. So we spent all these times looking at his four names. But I told you we're going to praise not just because we see our king, but because we share his kingdom. Guess who else has a name on their head? Look, remember Revelation 3.12. Look at Jesus' promise to his people. The one who conquers, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. There you go. You're just planted right there, a part of the structure. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. Do you see that? You've got names on you as well. The name of the Father, the name of the city, which means you're part of the people. Jesus' own name written on you. He's ours and we're his. He's claimed you for his own. We're gonna see our king and share in his kingdom. Oh, it's gonna be rad, that written on his thigh, king of kings and lord of lords, faithful and true. He's come for us. The word will come true. And what will we do? We will praise. That's what we'll do. Fourth thing to see about why we'll praise, it's in this haunting section, verses 17 to 21. I don't know if you noticed as the text was read, but there's a parallel between two invitations in this passage. Two invitations. In verse 17, we have the second invitation. And this angel standing in the sun with a loud voice, he calls out. Do you see who he invites? You know, strangely, both invitations are invitations to a feast. A tale of two feasts when Jesus comes back. The second feast here, the angel invites the birds of prey and the vultures. And why does he invite them? Well, I, don't, I don't know how to say this other than the words in the text. There's going to be carnage like never before. And you see who it was going to hit? How would you sum it up? Who's it going to hit? Everyone. Pretty much. Kings? The people had it all together, all the, all the insurance, all the castles, all the, all the walls, all the cars, all the money. Yeah, it hits them. And everyone else too. In fact, it hits uh, those who received the mark of the beast. Do you remember what that was? I really want to make sure we don't get superstitious or conspiracy theory on this. The mark of the beast is far more scary than any conspiracy theory. It means you didn't trust Jesus and love him the most. That's what it means. 
It means you compromised on Christ and partnered with the world. There's a thousand ways that can be expressed, but that's the core of it. And So didn't, didn't the Bible tell us from the very beginning, the wages of sin is what? What did God tell us from the very beginning? The wages of sin is, is death. That's why I'm going to get old and die, because I'm a sinner. And the, and the reason when Jesus comes back, they will be just like justice like we can't even handle is because it's falling on people who have not only just sinned but have refused to repent and return to the one who would save them from their sins moreover did you see this the whole attitude of all human society is to be anti-jesus by being anti his people it's as if the world has said to the one who created them who gives them life who is over them who warns them who invites them to trust in him it's as if the world has said we want war against you hearts of enmity we want war against God. That's the rebellious heart. And Jesus comes back saying, so it's war you want? It's war you shall have. But look what happens. The beasts and the kings of the earth, the armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and his army. The beast is captured. Again, just remember, this is symbolic for Government, God, bad, mandating idolatry. With it, the false prophet. Remember, that's symbolic for false religion, drawing people away from the gospel and its call. And he takes those enemies and he throws them into the lake of fire. Now, those aren't real creatures, right? There's not a real beast. You know that? Yeah? Symbolic for human societies, for human choices. It signifies people and what they have done with their lives and they're thrown into the lake of fire. It's the just penalty for sinning continually against a holy God. What will be our response? I'm going to say humble praise. Humble praise. Humble, because I deserve this. Are you with me? I've sinned against God. On my own, I would deserve this. Humble. And the only reason I'm not going to get it is because Jesus took it for me. Isn't that right? So it's humble praise. But it's also praise, and I think persecuted Christians get this better than we do. If you can imagine a scene, and, and there's people we know and love in these scenes. We may be in them one day. There are places in the world where to be a Christian brings immense, immense pain and suffering and difficulty. And the more you know that kind of a life, won't you rejoice when Jesus comes to save you and judges your enemies? Won't, won't you say, save me? And when he overwhelmingly defeats all your enemies and takes you to the wedding feast... Won't you praise him? You will. It'll be perfect justice. And it'll be to the salvation of those who belong to him. And you'll praise. You will praise. So what's our destiny, church, if you belong to Christ? 
you're going to praise. We've seen four reasons. The Almighty God is your God, and you will see his reign. Number two, you will enjoy incredible closeness with Jesus. Number three, you will see Jesus as king and share in his kingdom. Number four, you will see Jesus overwhelmingly defeat all of your enemies, and even towards the the end of Revelation, that final enemy, death, will be defeated, and we will rise again, and we will praise. What should be our response? And for this, I'll take us back up to that first invitation. There's a first invitation, and it's in verse 9. The angel says to John, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. This is a, probably a different word for invited. It's more the word called. And so if you have your theological radar on, uh, there's a way in which the gospel we invite, who do we invite with the gospel? Come trust Jesus. Everyone. But there's a different kind of invitation that hits the heart that God sends. The calling. And especially if you've converted as an adult, you can tell us about yours. You had this time of life where you didn't care about Christ or the gospel or what he's done for you. And somehow one day, ah, you saw your sin. You saw your need for Jesus. You repented. You trusted him. You began to change. You began to seek him. You were responding to God's invitation. You were called. God drew you to himself. The one who chose you and sent his son for you applied the work to you by the power of the spirit and brought you to himself. Blessed are those who are called to the wedding supper of the Lamb. So if that's you right now, and the angel says, you're gonna be so happy to make that wedding supper, what do we say? I mean, if I was ever gonna get an amen, it's right now. Amen, you're like, yeah, yes, we're blessed. These are the true words of God. But then something shocking happens. And I'm actually amazed John even told us about it. Because I'd be like, if I was the one having the vision, and I did this, I'd be like, I don't have to say I didn't do it, but that doesn't mean I have to put it in here, right? Look what John puts in here in verse 10. The angel's talking to him, and he says in verse 10, then I fell down at his feet to worship him. The apostle receiving his holy vision is an idolater? That's what happened. And John told you about it. Why? Why did he tell you? It's going to happen again, believe it or not. Why? Because it is so easy to set Jesus to the side and put something else in his place. It's so easy. It's so easy to do it, even when you know about him. Even when, if you're John, you sat next to him. Even when you're John, if you wrote scripture, it's easy. Are you sure you're worshiping Jesus? Are you sure? Didn't we kind of talk about this last week? You can, you can love money and use God, or you can love God and use money. You can say good things about Jesus and really worship money. You can say good things about Jesus and really worship politics. 
You can say good things about Jesus and really worship family. You can say good things about Jesus and really worship sports. You can say good things about Jesus and really worship nearly anything. And most of them are good, like this angel. He's good. He's glorious. He works for Jesus. He would scare me too, I'm sure. It's easy. And so the question for your response, for your heart is, look at what's coming for those who are faithful. Not perfect. Nobody here is like that. I'm not like that. But faithful in trusting in and loving Jesus the most. And the response is, make sure that's you. Make sure that's you. Didn't Jesus say in the Gospels, no one can come to me unless he hates his father or mother? You remember that? It's in the Gospels and you think, whoa, I thought you told us to love our parents. I did, Jesus would say. I did. I want you to love your parents. But I just want you to love, what would Jesus say? I want you to love me more than your parents. And by the way, that's the only way you'll actually love your parents, right? Uh, you, you've got to hate your kids, Jesus would say. You'd be like, what? You tell us to love our children. Yeah, I do. But you've got to love me so much that in comparison, it's, it's not an enmity hatred. It's just they're, they're, they're not as important as he is. And by the way, that's the only way you're really going to love your kids. I know my wife will always love me because I know she loves Jesus more than me. Do you love Jesus the most? Look to his gospel. Trust his gospel. See the picture of the destiny of God's people. Look to what Jesus has done in his life, death, resurrection. Look what he does now in his intercession and his reign. Look what he will do when he comes back and love him the most because you know that in him, your destiny, what's it gonna be? Praise. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we need help. It's hard to walk by faith and not by sight. It's hard to believe your word deeply and let it sink all the way down. It's hard to die to our pride, our flesh, and live humbly for you. It's hard to die to ourselves. We pray your Holy Spirit would fill us you would keep us, that we would know as we put our faith in Christ that we are called, that we have an invitation to the wedding feast of the Lamb, that we would know that our husband loves us and will come for us and has given his spirit to us and his word for us to keep us for himself. And we just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would inspire in us, that we would know how to give our complete devotion to Jesus Christ for the glory of God the Father, and that no other thing, no matter how good it would be, would take his place, and we would have wisdom to walk faithfully together for him, no matter the cost. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening, and we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.